You cry like a girl. How many times have you heard that one? It's usually something some arrogant testicle says on the playground to another boy to make himself feel big, right? But did you know that there was a time and a place when they would have taken that as a compliment? Or at least some would have. The Gala of Ancient Sumer wanted to cry like a girl. In fact, the assigned male Gala used a special dialect of the Sumerian language reserved solely for women to present as female when they sang lamentations in the temple. Are these Gala the world's oldest recorded transgender individuals in history? That's what we're talking about today on the History of Sex Short Shorts. The History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I want to thank our Patreon patron, Ivy Clark, for making this episode possible. Before we get started, I've got another great show to recommend for you. Gender Reveal is a podcast about what the heck gender is. It's a podcast for non-binary folks, people who don't know what non-binary means, and everyone in between. It's hosted by queer, non-binary, biracial journalist Molly Woodstock, who puts out highly informative episodes about the experience of being non-binary, being trans, and other forms of non-normative gender identity. They bring on a lot of guests to get that personal experience, but their Gender 101 episodes actually seem to be among their most popular and are especially useful for me about learning this stuff. They have a ton of them that I can highly recommend. If you are genderqueer, think you might be genderqueer, or just want to make sure you are up to speed on the genderqueer experience, you will love Gender Reveal. All right, let's get started. Time for today's Short Shorts. Short 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 I don't know if most of you out there know the 1999 movie Boys Don't Cry. It didn't become one of those iconic movies everyone remembers, but I bet any trans people among you out there who lived through the 90s remember it because it was one of the few mainstream depictions of gender crossing at the time which was sympathetic to the trans person and told from their point of view. Now, the main character, Brandon, played by Hilary Swank, is assigned female, but endeavors to present as male. Now, the ancient Sumerian gala that we're going to be talking about today actually went the other direction, male to female, but their role in society had very much to do with masculinity issues, just like Brandon's. See, it's all about toughness and softness. In the movie, part of Brandon's female-to-male journey is learning to act tough because, as the title suggests, boys don't cry. Crying is a girl thing, even though all of us, boys and girls and everyone else, we all hurt and we all cry, at least on the inside. The question is, how do you present that to the world without undermining your tough guy image? 
That's where the Gala come in. They were there to help others, including men and anyone else striving for masculinity, to cry. Now that's not easy for hypermasculine men, and so far in this series we've seen the kind of hypermasculinity present in ancient Mesopotamia, with men in Babylon always needing to be the penetrator and never the penetratee, and wealthy men in Assyria even surrounding themselves with eunuchs instead of intact men who would be seen as rivals, like some kind of territorial beta fish. Now ancient Sumer came before both of these cultures and had their own form of hypermasculinity, while at the same time working out the dilemma of how to cry as a tough guy. And one way that they solved that problem was let others cry for you so that you can let yourself feel it too. Hence, the gala. Now, to help understand the principle behind this, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen one of those Middle Eastern-style funerals, perhaps in a period drama or something depicting it, where there are professional mourners that wail loudly over the body during the funeral procession? They're paid to cry. It is their job, so it might seem like a farce, but in actual fact, their weeping enables, perhaps you could even say empowers, the friends and relatives to express their own grief a little more readily. It's more than just a job, it's an empathic service that they are providing. And the sad songs of the ancient Sumerian Gala were something like that too. The Gala was much like a mourner, but not for funerals. Their dirge mourned on a much larger scale. They mourned not the deaths of individuals, but the destruction of cities and lands. Such lamentations belong to a genre familiar to us from the Old Testament of the Bible. The Book of Lamentations opens with, How lonely sits the city that once was full of people! How like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations! That's what a lamentation mourns, city-scale desolation. And it's hard to point to a popular equivalent today, but if you can imagine Amazing Grace but sung about 9-11, that should give you a pretty good idea of what a lamentation was like. Now, the biblical book of Lamentations was deeply influenced by neighboring Mesopotamian traditions, going all the way back to the Sumerian Gala. In many ways, the genre was pioneered and defined by these individuals. The Gala wailed and gnashed their teeth, beating drums and plucking stringed instruments, sometimes in choirs as large as 176 individuals, all bemoaning the desolation of nations. And this had a magical quality to it. The Gala were religious figures, and their lamentations had divine results. Their songs were directed at gods to turn away their wrath 
perhaps on the theory that the deity would be moved to feel empathy and therefore relent. But by that very same token, the mournful notes of the gala would also move their mortal audience to feel something. As with any great sad song, these laments led listeners to an emotional catharsis where it became okay to let yourself feel, you know, to get a little misty-eyed, even as a tough guy, even if it is just a single tear. Thus, like professional funeral mourners, the gala provided an empathic service that empowered the people, including the toughest of the tough, to drop their cold, hard front and become soft, if only for the space of a song. But what about the gala themselves? Why were they able to do what others could not? That's where their gender-crossing journey comes into the picture. See, the Gala were assigned males, meaning, you know, the norms of their culture recognized them as male at birth. And while some early references do suggest there might have been some women among them in the beginning, by and large it was exclusively assigned males who were Gala. However, boys don't cry, so how come they could? Well, the Gala actually chose to present as female in order to tap into this softer side of themselves, in order to be able to cry. The songs that they sang were actually composed in a dialect called Emesal, which translates as Tongue of the Woman. And this dialect was used exclusively by women, so using it was a statement about your gender identity. And the closest comparison in English that I can think of might be, I don't know, maybe the valley girl accent, you know, you know, that kind of talking that's kind of like this, you know, with lots of likes and okays and, you know, and really frayed voices like this, you know, that valley girl accent. And, you know, the valley accent, well, it's not limited to girls, but when you hear a guy using it, it can feel a little off, you know, at least to me it does. So you can imagine the ancient Sumerian gala kind of singing like valley girls. <laughs> now, Emesol, the dialect that they sang in, was not a regional dialect like the valley is, nor did it have the kind of quirky Molly Ringwald image of the valley accent. In fact, on the contrary, it was actually a literary dialect held in high regard, much more like Latin. But insofar as it regarded gender and marked you as a certain gender, it was similar. When the gala sang in Emesol, it feminized them. Whatever their anatomy might suggest about their gender, when they sang, they were women. Now just imagine that for a second. Here we have a culture much like our own where boys don't cry, and yet here is a group of people choosing to forego those norms. Now whether they did so just for the sake of a song, or as a larger comment on their personal gender identity, that's a little difficult to say. But suffice to say, it is usually quite difficult to separate the one from the other. And in any case, even if some gala were actually just straight-up cisgender heterosexuals, not that they would have used that term, but you know what I mean, gender-normative people for their time, regardless of whether gender-normative people took on these roles, the gala role would no doubt have attracted any people that were out there struggling 
to express a gender more feminine than they were supposed to be by society's standards, people who struggled against the norm. I mean, much like the theater today, which does include straight people, but certainly has a reputation as being a safe place and a haven for queer people, you know, the gala role may have attracted more than its fair share of genderqueer individuals as well, people who chose the role as an expression of something deeper. And nor was this choice without consequences, too, by the way. The gala were actually mocked as engaging in passive sexual practices. Now, gender identity and sexuality are two separate things, but just as it is easily confused today, so it was then, and certainly many of them may well have engaged in alternative sexual practices. And even the name gala suggests something of it. The logograms used to write the word translate literally as penis and anus. So there you go right there. Now, same-sex male intercourse may well have gone together with the gala like butter with bread. But even if you didn't engage in that, choosing the role of gala would at minimum have opened you up to insinuations of doing so, especially of taking the passive role in sex, i.e. being the penetratee and not the penetrator, the bottom, not the top, which is, as we've seen, what ancient people actually cared about, much more than what sex you preferred to sleep with, per se. Even if same-sex lovemaking was accepted at the time, taking the passive role was not accepted, and the gala risked ridicule on that account. In fact, just the use of the female-coded emisol dialect in their lamentations would already have made them vulnerable to such accusations. It would have marked them as feminine and thus passive and thus opened them up to such taunting. So these were people who braved social rejection, putting themselves outside the norm in more ways than one. Now I can only imagine what that must have been like for them. Much like Brandon in the movie Boys Don't Cry, they likely had to walk a fine line in order to be who they were. They exposed themselves to the judgments of their peers and perhaps even violence due to their transgressions of gender norms. And yet, they risked everything because they were the only ones who could do it. Their role was necessary in Sumerian society. Remember, their lamentations were magical. They turned away the wrath of the gods. They were needed. But why did it have to be them? I mean, why couldn't they just have cisgender women sing the lamentations? I mean, why did it have to be assigned male, female presenting individuals who did this? Well, it seems that the ancient Sumerians held such gender crossing in awe. Myth connects crossing the boundaries of male and female on the one hand with crossing the boundary of life and death on the other. See, in the myth of Inanna's descent into the underworld, for example, the goddess Inanna, who is herself actually associated with gender banding, by the way, and was sometimes portrayed as a man, the goddess Inanna gets it in her head that she wants to be queen of both above and below, so she descends down into the underworld. But she drastically underestimates the power of the ruler of the underworld, her sister, Ereshkigal. So as she descends, Inanna is stripped 
one by one of all her regal treasures and clothing, and finally she comes before her sister as a goddess reduced to nakedness, and she is then hung on a hook on the wall like mere meat and left for dead. There could not be a greater reversal than to go from being a deity to meat. That really expresses death, the finality of death. And yet the story was not over. See, when Inanna did not return to heaven, the god Enki, who was kind of her friend, gets a little worried and decides to send two beings that he molds from the dirt beneath his fingernails to go and retrieve her. Now these beings are the Galatur and the Kurgara, the names of which may be linguistically related to the Gala, and their actions certainly resemble those of the Gala. So as we hear about the Galatur and the Kurgara in this myth, think Gala. Now these beings travel to the underworld and they find Erish Kigal, Inanna's sister, the one who stripped her and hung her naked like a lifeless piece of meat. They find Erish Kigal wallowing in the pangs of childbirth. See, as the queen of death, Erish Kegel has a curse. She is cursed to forever give birth, but to stillborn children. Death without life, pain without end. So what do the Galatur and Kurgara do? They echo her pain. Oh, my insides, cries Erish Kegel, and oh, my insides, cry the Galatur and the Kurgara. Oh, my outsides, cries Erish Kegel, and oh, my outsides, cry the Galatur and Kurgara. And when Erish Kegel hears them joining in her pain, empathizing with her, with the queen of death of all people, she is so moved that she relents her wrath and allows them to take Inanna back up to heaven to live again. Now, this myth strikingly resembles the role of the Gala. Two beings, born not of man and woman, but molded from the dirt under a god's fingernail and thus potentially genderless, wail and gnash their teeth in chorus in order to turn away the wrath of a deity. They sing a dirge of pain, much like a lamentation, and in so doing, cause even the coldest, the hardest, the toughest, death itself, to feel. Boys don't cry, neither does death. But their song is so moving that they accomplish the impossible. They bring the dead back to life. That is the real power of the Gala's lamentation. And it could not be just cisgender women who did it. See, transgressing the iron-fast law of life and death requires someone who understands transgression, the gender-crossing Gala. These heroes of life and death saved Sumer. Their songs turned away the wrath of the gods. When danger lurked, they were necessary. When destruction threatened, they were needed. They were instrumental to the prosperity of the city and the people. That's how the Sumerians saw it. These gender-crossing people who risked ridicule and violence to perform this vital role may well have been history's oldest recorded transgender individuals. Sumer is the oldest known writing culture, having invented writing, and so 
by definition, they would be the oldest transgender individuals in recorded history. Surely there were others in oral tradition before that, but when it comes to the written record, it doesn't get any older than this. And if indeed the Gala were transgender in anything even close to what we mean by that term today, then this is a pretty darn awesome way to start off that history. They were respected while risking ridicule, powerful while passive, forceful while feminine. Their songs were so beautifully tragic that even tough guys could get misty-eyed without risking their own masculinity. The Gala took that risk for them, and indeed, for everyone. Boys don't cry, but Gala do, and then even death may shed a single tear. Hope you learned something today, folks. I certainly did. By the way, I mentioned at the start of this Mesopotamia series that I wanted to talk about what I call business nuns. Well, I guess I got a little carried away with all of the other fascinating research that I turned up, and I didn't quite make it to that, but I will not fail you, folks. And so, crazy as it may sound, today is yet another double episode. In tandem with this one, you will find in your queue a second release, this one is the episode that we did on the Naughty 2 from my other show, Dead Ideas. So you can check out that one to find out about this fascinating thing that I like to call business nuns. Here's the teaser. We have found tons and tons of clay tablet receipts for sales of land and buildings and things like that, and a ridiculously high proportion of them name a kind of female religious personnel called a Naughty 2. Now, were these cloistered women living outside the patriarchal system actually the business tycoons of ancient Sumer? For the answer to that, check out that other episode from Dead Ideas right here on your History of Sex feed. Now, as for this show, The History of Sex, we will be back again next week with something appropriate for the new year. We are entering the 20s again. Hey! hey. <laughs> And so we are talking about flapper girls. But here's something you probably never considered. Why was the Nazis' worst nightmare the flapper girl? Check out next week's episode for that. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, you can support the show by subscribing, rating, and reviewing, or supporting us on Patreon. $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a gender-bending, drum-thrumming gala singing a dirge to defy death, or as a hard-as-nails tough guy shedding a single tear. Whatever you want, I will make you look awesome, I promise. Just support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash btnewberg. That is patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. That's it for today, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex.
podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.